The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Ministry Weekend with Zach Eswine. I've turned to Psalm 77 in the Old Testament. Psalm 77, if you have a Bible or a smartphone or computer, and Psalm 77. And we're going to uh, ask the question, what do we do if we are sorrowful? Particularly, what do we do if we are big D, depressed? when sorrow grows ill in our life? What do we do? And as with each of our sessions, we're, we're just offering, uh, offering um, a few bits of things that hopefully you can take with you and meditate upon uh, until the Lord comes back you know, together. But let's say a prayer as we prepare to read Psalm 77. Lord, here we are listening. We ask for your spirit Bind with this word to show us yourself. We ask that with thankfulness for all that you've created, body and soul, creature and tree. Thank you that your creation cries out your glory. We ask that you would enable us to see our true vine. But we are just branches and we look to you for nourishment. In your name, amen. Psalm 77 is a text that I turn to often. Perhaps it can become a friend in your life. It's one of those psalms in which uh, depression uh, is given language. And it's one of those psalms that there is a happy ending, almost subtle. And so, let's hear these words. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. 
when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Language is given for the presence of despair. In verse 2, it's a sleepless situation. He can't sleep in the night. He's up in the night watches. It's a speechless situation. In verse 4, I cannot speak. It's songless. His songs have been stolen. Verse 5 and 6, let me remember my song in the night. So he's up in the night watches with no song, no melody. It's a sorrowing season. Sorrowing with memories of God. To think of God hurts. You ever been there? When I remember God, I moan. I wonder if someone you were seeking to help said that to you. Do you have the capacity to handle it? Trust God, you might say. When I think of God, all I can do is moan. Now what would you say? Repent. I hope not. I hope you wouldn't say that. Or they're just saying what the psalmist said. Sorrowing meditations on God. When I meditate, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to meditate on these few scriptures. Okay, but when I meditate, I faint. My soul feels dead. Selah. This presence of despair leads to the felt absence of God. In her marvelous poem, Having It Out with Melancholy by Jane Kenyon, one of the lines says that depression ruined her manners toward God. Questions from the aching presence of God's displeasure. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Only the felt presence of the anger of God. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? If someone asked you those questions, could you handle them? Or would you be impatient to snuff them out? Questions from the aping, aching absence of God's pleasure. Notice the felt absence of God's love. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Verse 8. 
the felt absence of God's faithfulness? Are his promises at an end for all time? The felt absence of God's grace, verse 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? The absence of his compassion. Has he shut up his compassion? This is the language of the most traumatic of appropriate sorrowing. And when sorrow grows dark, in depression, we feel the presence of despair. God talk only makes us hurt and ache. Particularly if someone's been experienced God talkers like me who have tried to fix them tritely. And then when it comes to God, their manners are ruined. There is no felt presence of God. And what they do feel palpably is his absence and his displeasure. And so this language is being given to us. I just want to pause for a moment and remind us here who believe in the inerrancy and the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures that this is God-inspired speech, which means that God himself is speaking this giving us language for how to talk to him. It's not as if David or the psalmist here, the psalm of Asaph, it's not as if the psalmist is over here and God's over there just sort of watching. Yeah, I'll take that, okay. It's the spirit of God taking this poetry, this prayer, this expression Inspiring this language so that the people of God would have language for the night watches like this. And know what to say. And to know that these questions are right and appropriate. This experience is real under the sun. And that even faithful people of God can despair. Now, I turn here... Because unlike other psalms, some other psalms, this one ends so strangely. It's just weird. I'll get to the weirdness in a moment and then show you how beautiful it is. Sort of rouses himself, huh? Verse 11, okay. Verse 10, I will appeal. And then begins to take hold of what they know about the character of God. I will remember. I will ponder. You are holy. You're the God who works. You have redeemed your people. It's all distant right here, you see. There's no personal language. It isn't you're this to me. The language is, this is who I know you are. Now this is being prayed in the night watches. So nothing's changed. The clock still ticks, tick, tick. But then <laughs> begins to meditate upon a Sunday school lesson. It's the one where 
Moses and the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. That's just not the text I would think of going to. You know? But that's the text this psalmist turns to, the story, and begins to talk about the waters, who they saw God, the poetic language. It was like the waters were afraid and they trembled. The clouds poured water, thunder, lightning. And the waters parted. In verse 19, your way was through the sea. But you're thinking, your footprints weren't seen, but the like, what is he meditating upon the waters that parted? And what the parting waters reveal about the ways of God. And the key word here is through. As he's meditating upon that story, the waters are parting. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Your footprints were not seen. You seem to be nowhere to be found. And yet, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron through. Now, that's a remarkable place for this person in depression to start meditating on. You know? And in that itself, we see something about what do we do? What do we do when we are in the midst of depression in its various forms. We despair and we name it. We name the fact that God is nowhere to be found in our experience and all we can experience is dis dis displeasure and all we wonder is why is he absent and does he even love anymore and is he compassionate and has all grace gone and we name it. We give language to it. And then we dutifully do what we know. God, your ways. It starts off in this distant thing. Your works, okay, I will ponder on your works. Okay, I will meditate on this, right? But then it starts to turn into this poetic speech about the water. And the psalmist comes to the conclusion that the way the Lord leads his people was not to... Uh, stop the, uh, the Egyptians who were chasing them. It wasn't to uh, remove the bad circumstance. It wasn't to uh, uh, suddenly pick, <laughs> pick the Israelites up and transfer them somewhere else so that they were like birds that flew away and no longer had this hard thing. They were caught between the army and the sea with no way out. And what God did was lead them through. And so, that's where it ends. That's how the psalm ends. The way poetry does without telling you plainly what the moral is. But now we are inside being led by Moses and Aaron. And even though the footprints of God, the, the, the presence of God isn't seen, we get through. That is ultimately our answer. 
how, what do you do when you have depression? Our answer is you get through. You go through it. On occasion, the Lord will grant us some type of deliverance from something in an immediate way, but more common than not, his way is through the sea. Rather than removing it, as our Lord Jesus prayed, you can, you can remove it, take this cup from me. Your will be done. And the way was to the cross and through the tomb to the other side. That is a sobering thought, but a realistic one. And if you read the literature of uh, other than Christian people who have wrestled with big D depression throughout the bulk of their life, read someone like Joshua Schenck, read a, a, um, a, a collection of essays called Unholy Ghost. By the way, that line is taken from a, a Jane, that Jane Kenyon poem, having that with melancholy where she referred to depression as that unholy ghost. And uh, other than Christian people will talk about their constant search for hope and how trite hope is regularly offered and how eventually you must come to the realism that you have to learn how to handle this thing that isn't going away the way everyone promises it will. Yay. So how did Charles Spurgeon talk about this? Very practically. Uh, uh, he started with this. First, we speak the promises and write messages to ourselves. So how do we get through? We start like this person's doing, meditating on a place, a promise about the character of God that's going to get us through. Promises become very rich and dear to the sorrowing not trite statements, not importing uh, cultural assumptions about haste and impatience to a promise, but the promise itself because of what it reveals about the character of God. For example, sometimes a date on a calendar evokes a very painful memory or a frightful imagination. It's the anniversary. We, we keep anniversaries, anniversaries of wonderful things and anniversaries of terrible things. And if you've lost a child, as my parents lost their daughter, my sister when she died, you know that there's two anniversaries, the birthday and the date of the death. And you know that you're starting to be aware of either of those days coming at least a month in advance before it arrives. And you know that especially in the early years, it isn't just the day that's hard. It's six weeks. 
And so, this is what Charles said. You put a note where you can see it. You mark down a promise in the margin of your calendar is the way we'd say it. Psalm 91, he will cover you with pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Then on the basis of that promise he says, let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It cannot bring us anything but what God shall bear us through. And have practical. So for him, looked at the calendar, see the day coming, write a promise over that day. He also posted notes all over his house. Notes of promises. He and Susanna, his wife, did this. By the way, I wish we had time. Their story together is lovely because she was bedridden for a good bit of their married life. And out of such suffering between the two of them, as he called her rib and wifey, and their love for each other, they, they ministered to so many out of such suffering. So she and he would put notes around the house. We'd probably use Post-it notes. Put it on a mirror, a promise from the Lord. During a season of unusual criticism and public slander, because Charles Spurgeon was regularly and mercilessly criticized from both sides, he was too conservative and he was too liberal to others. They hung this promise, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, in their bedroom so that she hung it there so that her husband could see it every morning. It says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Now notice that there are two ways to look at a promise. One is to look at it and then to use it like it's a magic potion. If I just say it, then all will be well. Expecto Patronum. Blessed are you. And we use it no differently. We use the scriptures superstitiously. As if they're magic. It doesn't work that way. Rather, the scripture comes and now you have to travel with it from inside of it. You, it is the thing that enables you to get the next 30 seconds to the following 30 seconds into the next 30 seconds. It doesn't remove anything. It doesn't suddenly make things bright and cheery. It becomes the ground upon which you can take your next step. All, all of the criticism is still there. All of the pain is still there. But now they're not alone. There is something we take with us through. We live it. We live with it. It goes with us through. Superstitious use of scripture. I quote it, you're healed. I quote it, you should be good now. I quote it, everything is better. Use of scripture the way the scripture presents itself. I quote it and hold on to it for dear life. Spurgeon encouraged everyone who suffered 
to purchase a copy of Clark's Precious Promises. You can find that for free online. It's just, you know, a document online. Clark's Precious Promises. He kept a personal copy in his pocket wherever he went. It's just a little promise book. So in the midst of his onslaught of depression and what would the voices inside of himself, he would pull out his book and look at promises like this one. This is from Clark's Precious Promises under the heading Support and Trouble. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raises, raiseth up all those that be bowed down. And so there he is in the midst of an ordinary day in a carriage with a horse going through London, pulling out. There's the great hero of the faith pulling out his promise book to lean in on what is true about God. And he would invite others to do the same. So promises become important to us. We, they become like food and drink. No, not like fortune cookies. Not like Hallmark cards. They become the way we live and survive. We breathe them. And then he says, secondly... After we take hold of promises and write messages to ourselves and intentionally bring those promises before us, we plead these promises. And this is so kind. He would say this, what is prayer but the promise pleaded? And then he talks about his own way of doing this. And he says this, in my time of trouble, I like to find a promise which exactly fits my need. I'm quoting here. And then to put my finger on it and say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove it, that it is so by carrying it out in my case. I believe that this is your own writing, and I pray that you make it good to my faith. And then he said this, I believe in plenary inspiration of the scripture. And so I humbly look to the Lord for a plenary fulfillment of every sentence. That's him, not me. He's now talking about taking God at his word, that the character of God, not as a superstition, that I get the promise without the one who gave it. But that the promise is something I now plead Lord, this is your character. This is who you are. This is what you've said. I am your servant. Please, in my case, prove the truth of this for me. Not in some type of um, distant, ha, 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 prove it. But as a child, as a spouse to their lover, their covenant lover, this is your character. This is your pledge. I am helpless apart from you. A promise that Charles repeatedly used in prayer was Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Regularly, he 
turned that into prayer. There's a, he remarked, when we are lowest, we can still say, our Father. And when it is very dark and we are very weak, our childlike appeal can go up, Father, help me. Father, rescue me. He often retold a personal story about this. There was a a moment when he was racked with extreme pain of body and mind. He suffered with gout at a time when there were no medications for these kinds of things, very primitive medications for these kinds of things. Terrible bodily pain, terrible emotional, uh, mental harassment with no relief, no respite, and he was no longer able to bear it without crying out. Maybe, maybe someone's here and it's the one thing you fear most, that you would experience some kind of pain or some kind of sickness and you would actually not be able to control it. You'd have to cry out in front of other people. And he cried to God on the basis of this promised pity, and this is his prayer. This is how it's recounted from those who heard it and saw it and how he retells it. You are my father. I'm your child. You as a father are tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffered as you make me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do everything I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, my father? Will you still lay on me your heavy hand and not give me a smile from your countenance? And in that particular time, one among a thousand, the Lord answered immediately. Those who saw him say, it seemed like in a moment all of his pain subsided and he slept. That didn't happen again. But he never forgot when it did. What do we learn? Number one, promises aren't magic. We, we have promises. We write them down on our calendars and notes, promise books. We plead them. He would always say, plead your weakness, not your strength. Offer what you don't have to the Lord. Plead the promise. You don't come to the promise because you have what it promises. You come to it because you don't have what it promises. Plead your weakness. Promises aren't magic. We don't use the scripture superstitiously. They resemble love letters more than incantations, statements of truth more than immunity passes. They often forge not a pathway for escape from life, but an enablement to endure it. Number two, promises differ from our desires. As tender and valued as our desires are to God, we earnestly pray our desires, particularly for loved ones, because we know the merciful heart of God for us and for them. We pray what we want and what God has promised are not always the same. That's the thing. What I want and what is promised are not always the same. So a promise must be a promise. We have to distinguish what we want and what God wants. 
but we also need to make sure that what we're leaning upon is something God has actually promised. So, for example, God didn't promise us wealth. He didn't promise health. He didn't promise immunity from trial. He did not promise the absence of death. And so, as you know, we've prayed for a loved one. I prayed that my mama would not die, my grandmother. You have prayed that someone would not die, and they did. And for some of us, ever since, we've been angry at God as if he didn't keep his word. And in truth, he never promised that we wouldn't die. He promised a Savior to raise us from the death. We take hold of the promised Savior. We don't hold God accountable for a promise he didn't make. You wish you were wealthier than you are. You wish you had a certain job. You have prayed and prayed and fasted. You scripture trusted. But you were passed over and now you're angry at God. God never promised you that job. Never promised you a certain amount of money. He promised to be with you. He promised an inseparable union with him through Christ. He promised love. He promised faithfulness. But he didn't promise an economic way of life. So, our promises must be promises. He is with us. And these promises always return us to Jesus. In the man of sorrows, the cross, the victory of the empty tomb, preach to us about the sufferer who is king. The promises of God are yes and amen in him. He will have the final word. He is the rescue rescuer who regardless of our condition holds on to us. He says, I've come for you. Home waits for us. Nothing will separate you from me. That is a promise. Neither height nor depth, death, nothing can separate us. How do we, what do we do if we have depression? We've begun with promises. Now more quickly, let's look at several things he would say. We look for like cases in Scripture. Charles Spurgeon would say, we look for the storyline in Scripture, and we find ourselves in it. We look for people who experienced what we experience in the Bible. He talks about it. The cases of other believers which are like our own, the more exact the agreement, the greater the comfort it will yield. When we find this close situation to our own, we endeavor to light upon that particular utterance of divine grace which is suitable to ourselves and in our present circumstances. And so he would say, search the scripture and find the weakness of, 
of those described in Scripture. Don't look for the hero. Look for the broken one. Don't look to exalt the heroic in this characters in the Scripture. Look for the times when they were despairing. Look for when they had no hope. Look for when they had no promise. Look at that. Find that and see in them your own plight so that you know that the word of God isn't somehow distant from you, telling you to shape up. The word of God is giving you knowledgeable, wise language so you know how to realistically, non-naively navigate life under the sun. And you can know that you are not the first or the last of the people of God to feel this way and struggle this way. And you learn from how they spoke and what they did, what you too can learn and say. Surprisingly, next, those who struggle with sadness in its various forms intentionally learn to seek out humor. You pursue a good laugh. A good laugh, you see, is different, different than certain kinds of illusory laughters false parties, false celebrations, diversions of things to make us giddy. Different from that, looking for the good humor that has not quit in the fallen world. And so Charles Spurgeon is known as a funny man with a hearty laugh for all of his suffering and all of his wife's suffering, they knew how to laugh. They laughed at ordinary things. They laughed at themselves. They laughed at a good joke well told. And he would quote Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine. And he applied that wisdom, quote, cheerfulness readily carries burdens which despondency dares not touch. Cheerfulness, not the fortune cookie kind, not the trite kind, hopefully all that we've been saying about symbolism, the simpleton of the Proverbs, but hearty laughter of a, of a humorous thing and to seek it out. So, uh, he has in his writings multiple times where he just shares collections of stories that are fun. They're just funny. Next, quiet retreats in less pressured places. Over the years, though he often resisted the fact that he had to do it, he built into his life annual seasons of winter removal to a land of sunshine and flowers. He went to Menton, France, three months at a time each year. Congregation understood remarkable. Several things would happen, you see. Lived in London, and he just says, uh, let's see if I can find that here. 
he talks about how the fog and the dampness and the weather of London in winter was hard on his mind and his body. Sometimes people today talk about seasonal affective reality in their lives. He says that the weather of the place was hard on him. And so he had to move for a time. And nature was a part of that quote. Communion with nature, that's what he called it. Communion with nature eases the gloom and fatigue of a sensitive frame. The need to build stents of nature and retreat into his life meant that he had to choose to say no to speaking engagements. This is remarkable. On the one hand, influence with the word of God. On the other hand, he is a depressed and physically pained human being. Here's what he says. Quote, the choice seems to lie between being laid aside pretty frequently with depression of spirit and pain of body and steadily keeping on with home duties. That's the choice. To be laid aside with depression and pain or to keep up with the work. Keep steadily up with work. He says, I prefer the second. I want to be able to keep doing work steadily. Therefore, I take three months off. He says this, because I hope that the comparative quiet may bring greater strength for future endeavors. This is a strategic pause, humbling to him. He didn't like it. Saying no to speaking engagements, saying no to being able to, to do a full 52-week year with his congregation, he didn't like it. But he surrendered to it. And so we find ways to make contact with nature and sunshine. This is the best medicine for hypochondriacs. This is him talking. The surest tonic for the declining. The best refreshment for the weary to be outside in the sun. I mean, I, I like being here. Uh, for a melancholy guy like me, I have to take vitamin D supplements back in Missouri. Because the amount of sunshine just doesn't translate. And I have remarkably low vitamin D in my body. And that contributes to melancholy. It's nice to be out here. The sun just says, vitamin D. Well, you can see what you think about that. I know I'm starting to talk about medication. Become intentional about season, seasonal rhythms. Pay attention to how weather, work, and rest functions for your gloom. Rest is the best, if, this is what he says, rest is the best if not the only medicine for those occupied with mental pursuits and subject to frequent depression of spirit. In that light, he says, quote, get away, you sons of sadness, from your ordinary avocations for a little season if you possibly can and enjoy quiet and repose. Quote, the very best thing in the world when you are nervous and troubled is to live by very short periods. Live day by the day, or better still, live moment by moment. 
Uh, someone asked me recently, uh, can, I serve, can I serve as a pastor with the kinds of uh, depression that I suffer with? Someone asked me that. They, they've struggled with depression both uh, uh, biologically and circumstantially for their whole life. Can I be a pastor? And I said, I wonder how you'd answer. I said, yes, of course you can. But here's some things you need to know. If someone calls you to be their pastor up in the northern tip of Wisconsin, I don't think that's for you. Because the winters there don't end. Seemingly so. Or if you do go there, your vacation isn't in the summertime. Your vacation is the month of January. And it needs to be for all your vacation like at once. Two weeks, four weeks, whatever it is. And likely, you may not, you may not be a lead pastor, depending on the situation. But you get to serve in all manner of ways. You'll have to account, you see, for what you know about yourself. Uh, a man I was recently talking to uh, was a uh, remarkably gifted uh, individual who was offered a prestigious leadership post known internationally and had to set it aside. Why? Because the amount of public scrutiny and responsible requirement would be too much for him. That's difficult for someone to admit. Well, he was a missionary for years in places where physical violence erupted. He saw horrific trauma firsthand with his own eyes. He's never been the same. And yet, all he did was step into a different position, which didn't require that same kind of pressure, but allowed him to have a different rhythm to his days and weeks with these things we're talking about, and he's flourishing. And in some ways, he might be reaching people more than he would have in the other position, though none of us could have imagined that in the beginning. Medicine. Charles Spurgeon took it. He took medicine. It was primitive back then. Things like opium, laudanum. And he says this. It would not be wise to live by a supposed faith and cast off the physician and his medicines any more than to discharge the butcher and the tailor and expect to be fed and clothed by faith. Quote, we make use of medicines, and now here's the key, but these can do nothing apart from the Lord who healeth all our diseases. If you read... Uh, other than Christian persons who have 
wrestled with these kinds of things throughout their lives, they will say this very thing, except for the part about our Lord. They will say that medicine can help, but not cure. It can't take anything away. But it can calm or bring clarity to your thoughts so that you can deal with the thing it can't remove. Spurgeon is saying, why do we trust God with medicine for our physical ailment and deny it for other ailments? Shouldn't we rather see medicine the way medicine is anywhere? It has its role to play, but that role is limited. And you know that by everything we've been saying so far. Sometimes medicine just isn't needed. And when it is needed, it's in the context of this whole rhythm of life we're talking about. Because Spurgeon also took warm baths. Where you been, megachurch reformed pastor? Oh, I was taking a hot bath. And he talked about paying attention to how food affected him. Uh, recently, uh, oh, uh, I guess two years ago now, uh, I began to have severe panic attacks. Severe panic attacks. I hadn't had them for eight years. And uh, it was in a season which everything was going well. And that, I'm learning, was the culprit. Because we'd been through a se uh, uh, an extended season of emotional trauma, emotional energy, emotional effort, nonstop for a handful of years. Now things are settling and good, and I fall apart. Panic attacks uh, originate in the body. Your body goes into a flight response as if you're under threat, but there is no threat anywhere. It's an extremely miserable thing to experience. As I've said to some of you, and some of you know this, you feel like you're going crazy, you feel like you're going to die, you feel like you're going to pass out. None of those things are going to happen. But your body and your heart and your mind can only imagine threat. Uh, handling that required not only a counselor, my covenant lover, my good friends, promises, rhythms of rest, but I also needed to look at my food. It's the first time in my life, I'm 48. It's the first time in my life I tried this new age thing. I'm saying that tongue in cheek, you know, how we say, ah, oh, to look at your food, that would be Gnostic. No, actually, we're made body and soul. It makes sense. So it's the first time I looked at food in my life and discovered the impact of sugar and caffeine and how that how much of that I had in my life I just hadn't paid attention to, and how that doesn't cause but exacerbates what's already there. 
and by taking steps to minimize uh, certain things along with all these other things, it certainly relieved, didn't remove, but relieved. And Charles Spurgeon is the one suggesting we pay attention to how food affects us. The real, you know, the real uh, debate, which I won't say much about here, I just write about it for you. The real debate is that uh, in what way did he use alcohol? And the fact is that he did not drink alcohol uh, in a way of drunkenness and all those kinds of things. But there is a fact that at the time, a part of a, uh, something a doctor would prescribe had alcohol in it. I remember that when I was a boy, I, I'm a Presbyterian among a lot of Baptists, so we can just keep talking. My, I remember when I was a boy, my mamaw, my grandmother, uh, I'm, I'm four years old, and I have a cold, and I, she gives me a shot of whiskey. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't a full shot. We can't fault him for his time. And he also smoked cigars. And he says, they rested his mind. And all I want to say is, whatever you think about whether he should or should not have smoked a cigar, and how long he did, and how long he didn't, and all those debates uh, about that, I just want to say this. Can we show a little compassion to a man who suffered bodily and mentally the way he did with very little medical help of any kind that could bring any kind of relief? That on occasion, a cigar helped him relax. And that context is different than yours and mine. I just want to give him a break. He also said it could be good to have a pet. He talks about the comfort it is, the comfort it is to be despondent in soul and to feel the the kind lick of a dog on your hand, a companion friend. Now, at this point, we're saying, where's the sermons? Where's the counseling? I'm getting there. It's just that he said this, sick men, I'm quoting, sick men want more than instruction. They require our cordials, by which he means encouragement. They require our cordials and supports. A clergyman may be a learned theologian, but powerless as a pastor. He said that. Because when we're in a Psalm 77 situation, we do need instruction and counsel. He talks at length about that. But then he shows its limits. And that some of us think that we only give instruction when what a person really needs is encouragement and support. We call for the elders, he says. We anoint with oil from James chapter 5. We need a friend. He'll talk about John Newton and William Cooper. Some of us say Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R. Cowper's poem, The Castaway, describes himself as utterly abandoned by God, engulfed and overwhelmed, and yet he's the same one that has written many of the hymns that we love. 
that speak of God's grace and faith to us. Finally, what he says to do, Spurgeon says, is fight. And this is what he says. The soul is broken in pieces, I'm quoting. The soul is broken in pieces, lanced, pricked with knives, dissolved, racked, pained. It, know not, it knows not how to exist when it gives way to fear. Up, Christian, you are of the sorrowful countenance. Up, chase your fears. Why would you ever be groaning in our dungeon? Why should giant despair forever beat you with his crabtree cudgel? Up, drive him away. This is what he says. We might say it this way. We learn to say, you might be right, but Jesus. So, you might be right. Things are worse than I thought, but Jesus. You might be right. All is lost, but Jesus. You might be right. I am abandoned, but Jesus. You might be right. I am forfeit, but Jesus. You might be right. I should stay down, but Jesus. You might be right. It would be too late for me, but Jesus. You might be right. I am out of reach, but Jesus. You might be right. I am a sinner, but Jesus. You might be right. They might be better off without me, but Jesus. You might be right. Maybe I deserve to die, but Jesus. And so, what do you do when you have depression? You get through. How do you get through with every means of body and soul God has made available to you? What does that mean? You might have to adjust your life. And there's grief there. You may not move to where you wanted to move to. You may not be able to have the position you always dreamed of having. The rhythm of things, might, you may not be as productive or efficient as you had hoped to be. But with everything of creation and providence, humor, tears, a friend, food, rhythms of rest, promises from God that we plead carrying around, putting notes all over our house. And by the grace of God, fighting in community, knowing that the Lord holds us even when we can't hold ourselves, it seems. And at the end of it all, that turned out to be our life. And at the end of it all, it turned out that the Lord saw us through, though his footprints were unseen. Let's pray. Lord, we commit these things to you so much for us to, to chew on and think through. We, we ask that you would take these few morsels and grant them to be good food for us. We commit it in your name. Amen. Copyright 2017 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.